Hey, it's Kayla again for the Confused Nursing Student Podcast. So, I have found my other notes. I recently just did an episode on bone cancer, osteomyelitis, and osteoporosis. Um, And now I have my notes for uh, musculoskeletal stuff. So, that would be like fractures and things like that. Uh, So, I have found them and I will go ahead and go over them. Uh, Again, as my little disclaimer goes, um, my notes are not going to be perfect. I do not know all the information. This is literally based on my reading. I have very little experience as I am a nursing student um, with limited clinical time. And I am trying my best to learn myself and to help other people learn if you need it. So um, I will go ahead and get started. So for musculoskeletal. Two-thirds, it takes up two-thirds of injuries and primary disability in the United States. So why are fractures a big deal? I'll answer that. (laughs) Lots of reasons. They impair mobility, comfort, sensory perception, and um, the impairment of sensory perception happens because of pressure on nerve endings, and um, that usually happens due to edema. It also impairs tissue integrity, so even edema... Uh, itself can cause issues in skin integrity, and that's pretty repetitive in our reading. So pathophysiology, so what is a fracture? A fracture is a break or disruption in bone and screws up patient mobility and comfort. Uh, Types of fractures, so there's a bunch. So there is a complete fracture. It's across the width, width, (laughs) width of the bone. And bone is divided into sections. If altered, then it can be called displaced. Displaced fractures are more likely to damage blood vessels, nerves, and other soft tissues. An incomplete fracture is a fracture that does not uh, divide the bone into two portions because it's a break in the part of the bone. And the fracture can be open, uh, which is also known as compound, or closed, which is also known as simple. And this helps describe the level of tissue damage that's present. An open or compound fracture would cause a wound externally. uh, And the simple or closed one, it does not go through the skin and there is no visible wound. So then there's the descriptions of the cause of the fracture. And that could be fragility, pathologic, spontaneous. And spontaneous happens... Uh, when there's minimal trauma to the bone and it's weakened by disease, like uh, osteoporosis. A fatigue, oh, there's also a fatigue fracture, and that's an extensive uh, strain on bone, so stress, and that happens in athletes. Um, And then there's a compression fracture, so loading force on a cancellous bone, and it's usually in the vertebrae with osteoporosis. So we learned a little bit about that when we went over like spinal cord injury and um, yeah, spinal cord injury. I didn't make an episode because this is before I started the, this little podcast thing. But if you fall off of a ladder or if you fall down and you fall on your butt, your um, spine can compress. So that's when a fracture would happen and it kind of like sh- not shreds, but everything kind of gets broken. Um, okay, look at pictures. It's cool. Uh, all right, so bone healing. There is five stages of bone healing. Stage one. 
Stage 1 takes 24 to 72 hours. It's the hematoma formation because bone is vascular, remember. Stage 2 takes 3 days to 2 weeks. Uh, granulation tissue will invade the hematoma and then form fibrocartilage. Stage 3, vascular and cellular proliferation. So new vascular tissue or callus is formed at three weeks to six weeks. So that's when the callus formation starts, and that's a non-bony union. Uh, stage four, the callus is reabsorbed and transferred to bone, and that takes about three to six weeks. And stage five is consolidation and bone remodeling. So this starch starts about uh, four to six weeks after the fracture to one year, it really depends. Young and healthy adults, it usually takes four to six weeks for bone healing. Uh, complete healing can take up to three months or longer, especially if you're over 70 years old. Uh, lots of fractures, uh, lots of factors will affect bone healing. So it really kind of depends on the person, if they have any underlying diseases or, you know, endocrine issues or whatever, that will affect your bone healing. All right. Now to go on to complications of fractures. So there is acute compartment syndrome, crush syndrome, hemorrhage and hypovolemic shock, fat embolism, venous thromboembolism, infection, ischemic necrosis, delayed union, and complex regional pain syndrome. So those are all complications of fractures. And we'll go into, I think, all of them. Uh, if not most of them. So what is acute compartment syndrome? So it's when the muscle, uh, blood vessels, and nerves are in the fascia. So that's that happens. So that's already there. Muscle, blood vessels, and nerves are in fascia. So the fascia is inelastic and it covers these, these bad boys right here. And so acute compartment syndrome increases pressure within those compartments and it decreases the circulation and it's common in the lower leg and forearm. It can be referred to as ischemia edema. The capillaries are more permeable and they dilate. They're permeable because ischemic muscle will release histamine. The plasma proteins will leak into the interstitial space, which leads to edema. Perfusion will be decreased. Paresthesia would occur and pulses get weak. Pain happens with motion. Uh, no, no treatment. So mm, there's no treatment, I guess. And then what can cause is necrosis, cyanosis, paresis, and tingling. 75% of cases of acute compartment syndrome is from a fracture. Injury or trauma is usually above the compartment itself. So it affects distally. Also, uh, in burns, snake bites, insect bites, and infiltration of IV fluid, this can occur. Uh, acute compartment syndrome, it causes infection, motor weakness, myoglobinuria, renal failure, and if it's extreme, you may need amputation. Uh, there's also Volkmann's contractures, which result from shortening of ischemic muscle and nerve involvement. 
So that was acute compartment syndrome as a complication of fractures. All right, so hemorrhage. Hemorrhage and hypovolemic shock can happen as a complication as well. So uh, that's when there's a risk of bleeding because of vascular bone. Uh, arteries could get cut because of a hemorrhage and hypovolemic shock could occur after. Okay, so that's really brief. I didn't put a lot here, sorry. Fat embolism syndrome. So this happens. So fat globules, globules are released from the yellow bone marrow into the bloodstream. Usually it happens 12 to 48 hours after the fracture. They'll clog small blood vessels. It usually clogs, uh, it can usually clog lungs and impair organ perfusion. Embolized fat degrades into free fatty acids and C-reactive protein, <clears throat> and it leads to capillary leakage, lipid and platelet aggregation, and clot formation seen in patients who have total uh, joint replacement and osteomyelitis, blunt trauma, and sickle cell disease. The age where fat embolisms happen is young men at 20 to 40 or older adults 70 to 80. If there's a recent hip fracture, uh, then fat embolism syndrome can happen at 24 to 72 hours after the injury or surgery. The early signs and symptoms of having a fat embolism would be low arterial oxygen level or hypoxemia, dyspnea, which is di like difficulty breathing, tachypnea is increased respiration rate, also headache, lethargy, ag agitation, uh, confusion, decreased level of consciousness, and seizures. So there's a non-palpable red-brown petechiae over the neck, upper arms, and chest, and that's the last sign to develop. And that is, um, I believe I might say it later, so this might be repetitive, but as I'm saying this, I think that's like a specific sign. So if you had to compare a fat embolism versus a pulmonary embolism, the petechiae would be what you're looking at. Okay, so abnormal labs. There would be a decreased um, PaO2, so partial pressure of oxygen level, at under 60 millimeters of, or, yeah, millimeters of mercury. Increased ESR, which is an uh, erythrocyte sedimentation rate, and decreased calcium, and increased serum lipid level. A chest x-ray would show bilateral infiltrates. Uh, FES, so FES is fat embolism syndrome, can lead to respiratory failure and death from pulmonary edema. It can be misdiagnosed as a pulmonary embolism via blood clot. Differences. So it's the basically the same. So fat embolism, fat embolism syndrome, and pulmonary embolism again would have the same symptoms except for the petechiae. And let's see. And then the pulmonary embolism formed from a blood clot rather than fat. So treatment for FES would be bed rest, oxygen, hydration, steroid therapy on fracture immobilization, whereas for uh, pulmonary embolism, you would do bed rest, O2, so same, mechanical ventilation, different, uh, anticoagulants, thrombolytics, and possible surgery. 
You also might get uh, a Vina Cava umbrella, which is like this little cute, well, maybe it's not cute, but it's like this thing that they put in the Vena Cava to block the uh, embolism from traveling to the heart and the lungs. And there might be a pulmonary embolectomy that needs to get done for a pulmonary embolism. Okay, so venous thrombo thromboembolism as a complication of fat emboli embolism. Okay, just to keep you guys on track because I get lost here too. So um, venous thromboembolism is a DVT and PE. So DVT is deep vein thrombosis and PE is pulmonary embolism. And uh, it's a, yeah, yep, yep, yep. And those are common complications of lower extremity surgery. More likely risks um, would be cancer, surgery longer than 30 minutes, history of smoking, obesity, heart disease, increased immobility, history of a VTE, or being old, basically, being an older adult. Okay, so that was VTE or venous thromboembolism. Infection as a complication. So that happens from the actual trauma. Uh, it can happen from implanted things like rods and screws. It also can happen. Uh, osteomyelitis is most common with open fractures. So watch out for that and watch or not watch. Listen to my episode on osteomyelitis. Uh, let's see. And we try to reduce MO, so microorganism infection. Um, that is resistant like MRSA. So, okay. Now for chronic complications. So some chronic um, complications would be uh, avascular necrosis, uh, delayed bone healing, chronic regional pain syndrome. Avascular necrosis is more common in hip fractures. Uh, hardware can interfere with circulation as well. Uh, for a delayed union, so the fracture is not healed within six months of entry. There is non-union and uh, mal malunion. Sorry, malunion and tibial fractures. It's more common. Also, it's common in older adults, and it results in chronic pain. Complex regional pain syndrome. I think it's ac acronymed as um, or shortened as CRPS, but I'm going to say the whole thing. Complex regional pain syndrome. We don't understand it yet, but there's something to do with dysfunction of the CNS and PNS. So CNS, in case you need to know, is central nervous system. Also this podcast, CNS. And um, PNS is peripheral nervous system. It's common in the feet and hands. Uh, the autonomic system and motor symptoms and sensory symptoms uh, would also come from this. So some autonomic system symptoms would be uh, changing color and temperature and sensitivity of the skin. Whereas motor symptoms would be paresis, uh, muscle spasm, and loss of function. And sensory symptoms would be like intense burning pain. And eventually osteoporosis could happen from this. Okay, so those were some of the types of fractures and the complications of having a fracture. So let's go a little bit into the etiology and health promotion. So etiology, it's a trauma. You can mostly be trauma from an MVA, so motor vehicle accident. Uh, sports, exercise, malnutrition. Osteoporosis and gen genetic factors can happen as well or be factors in this. 
Rib fractures are most common in adults and uh, femoral shaft fractures in young and middle adults. Okay, and now for the health promotion and maintenance. So uh, it's basically promoting safety. So airbags and seatbelts, they help tremendously in preventing fractures and in general any type of damage that can happen from a motor vehicle accident. Um, also, we want to prevent osteoporosis. So like I said in the osteoporosis episode, um, we need to prevent falls. We should do home safety assessments, um, teach them about like drinking and driving prevention uh, and like basic nutrition and things like that. And then when it comes to like bicycles or scooters or things like that, you should have uh, safety gear as always and helmets. Because not only could you get fractures, you can have traumatic brain injury and spinal cord injury and all kinds of other injury if you're not safe. So promote safety for your patients. Okay, an assessment. So we will ask our patient about comfort and then the cause of the fracture. Uh, and incisional injuries uh, like knives or crush injuries because... Uh, these can cause hemorrhage, which therefore decreases perfusion within the body. We need to know if there was an acceleration or deceleration injury, or if there's direct trauma to organs. Uh, we should also know shearing and friction, because those can lead to increased wound contamination. And it's good to ask how it happened in general, because it can tell us a lot about what type of injury happened, and what body systems are affected, or what bones are affected. Uh, we should also ask drug and recreational prescription use, alcohol use. Uh, Middle-aged white affluent women usually have an increased opioid risk. Um, yeah, that's what the book says. And I did a paper on opioids. So yes, that I did a lot of studies on that or read a lot of studies on that. And just in case anyone gets offended, the studies show that middle-aged white affluent women do... Uh, use opioids or at risk of opioid abuse more so don't get offended if you are because I I'm offended by everything okay so take medical history uh, did the patient have bone cancer do they have osteoporosis what's their occupation what hobbies do they do do they do like crazy activities like skiing or anything like nuts um, that could you know put them at risk for fracture Physical assessment signs and symptoms of fracture. So we'll usually check the other system first before we actually check the fracture. Because, yes, we can fix the bone and we can try to get that you know, squared away. But if the organs are damaged, uh, you really need to attend to those first. So check your organs. Okay, check for a hypovolemic shock. Patient might have severe pain. If there's a hip fracture, there would be groin, groin pain or pain referral uh, referred to the back of the knee. Okay. For a shoulder fracture, we should always support the arm. Check positioning. Uh, depends on where the fracture is. You should always have the area supported. And also check, take a look at bone alignment. Uh, is, it, is there a deformity? Is it dislocated? Is it kind of like popping out? Um, check that and look around the area because you might see ecchymosis. Um, also, subcutaneous emphysema, which are bubbles under the skin from air trapping. A lot of our teachers have talked about this, and they said that it, it feels like uh, Rice Krispies or like a weird like bubble wrap feeling. So that's something to look out for. 
And we want to compare all extremities. So don't just look at that area. Take a look at, like if it was the right leg, take a look at the left leg and then determine what the differences are. Same with the right arm. Check the left arm. Check symmetry. Okay, so psychosocial assessment. Depends on the injury. There might be hospitalization, maybe not. You assess the bones in the fingers, wrist, foot, toes. Could be hospitalized for weeks. Um, this could lead to increased stress levels, body image concerns. Some people might feel depressed and vulnerable. They might not have social interaction after having um, their fracture and if they're in the hospital for such a long time. So um, always address their psychosocial concerns um, and their mental health um, because any physical injury can lead to some mental health issues or just, you know, coping, like helping them cope better so that they're not depressed. Okay, lab assessment. We might see a uh, decreased H and H. So if this is the first time you're hearing H and H, that is uh, hematocrit and hemoglobin, and that might be decreased because of increased bleeding. Uh, also, uh, increased ESR. So that stands for erythrocyte sedimentation rate, and that helps determine inflammatory response. Uh, increased WBC, white blood count. And that might be with the increased ESR, so that might indicate a possible bone infection. I love how everything is a mite. It might be this, and that's the common trend. Uh, let's see. Also increased calcium and phosphorus because the elements are being released um, from the bone. So the, yeah, so the bone is kind of destroyed or like, it's, you know, it is destroyed basically or hurt or injured. So Whatever is in the bone will be released into the um, bloodstream. And it's kind of the same like when you get a wound and then your potassium could go up because when your cells are damaged, whatever's inside the cells, it will be released into your blood. So that's something to look out for. Okay, imaging. So uh, the X an x-ray is used to confirm diagnosis. A CT is good for complex structures like the hip. And how do we manage acute pain? So in an emergency, we always assess our A, B, C. So airway, breathing, and circulation. And then we call 911. <laughs> so um, let's see. So CPR. Okay, so CPR would be first if needed, and then A and B. That's what the book said. So you do C and then B. No, C, A, and B. So instead of ABC, it goes to CAB. And you cut away clothing and remove stuff around the affected ex extremity. Have the patient in supine position and do a head-to-toe assessment. Uh, check or give IV opi opioids. So that would be like your Dilaudids and your fentanyls, uh, morphine sulfates. You want to splint the affected area. Use sterile gauze over the wound. And in the ED, you would immobilize the fracture and again with pain management, go through your pain management routine. For bone reduction, that's a realignment of the bone uh, and the ends can be done closed or, or open. Oh, so it's for closed or open and we will immobilize with bandages, casts, traction, internal fixation, external fi fixation. And as usual with the med surge book, we'll go through the non-surgical management and then the surgical management. So for non-surgical, for a closed reduction and immobilization, uh, orthostatic, orth, you know, orthotic device, 
or boot might be used depending on the type of fracture. Always assess the neurovascular status every one to four hours. Elevate higher than the heart and apply ice. For closed reduction and, um, and immobilization, they're done under moderate sedation for comfort. The nurse is checking oxygen and carbon dioxide. And if there's under 10 breaths a minute, you rub the patient's sternum and uh, tell them to breathe or help them, you know, breathe. And x-ray will confirm uh, that bone edges are approximated for a closed reduction and immobilization. Custom-fitted splints are used for uh, immobilizing orthotic boots for toes and ankles and feet. Casts are a rigid device that immobilizes the affected body part, usually for fractures, but also deformities like club foot um, or prevention like rheumatoid arthritis, because um, especially like in the hands, your, your hands in a patient with rheumatoid arthritis can get kind of um, malformed or funky, so um, that can help prevent that. So casting could be made of fiberglass and it can be waterproof and plaster is not really used anymore. Um, a window can be cut into the cast to see the wound if there is one. Uh, and the cast should be bivalved to which the cut, uh, which is to cut the cut cast in half. Um, and the arms might be in a sling if it's needed and explain the patient to the patient the purpose of equipment. So explain why they need it, how long they need it, what's it for. Um, and you also need to make sure it's not too tight or too loose. So uh, if it's too tight, it can cut off circulation or, uh, yeah, or if you're having edema, then it can get too tight as well. You also want to check if there's any drainage, especially if there's a wound um, in the cast and report any excess drainage. Also check for um, infection, circulation, nerve damage, necrosis. Uh, for necrosis, a patient would report a hot spot and the cast might feel warm too. Check for complications of impaired mobility, which would be pneumonia and atelectasis. So uh, pneumonia is like an infection of the lung or a condition of the lung. And uh, atelectasis is more like a, uh, oh gosh, what's the word? It's collapsing, like a collapsing of the lung. The joint might be in a fixed flexion state and osteoporosis and osteoarthritis could possibly develop from the, you know, immobility. So what's traction? So traction, application of pulling force to a part of the body to provide reduction, alignment, and rest. It decreases the muscle spasms and prevents deformity usually hospitalized if you're in a traction. Uh, running traction is a pulling force that is in one direction and the patient body is count is the counter traction. Uh, balance suspension provides counter traction so a pulling force is not changed if patient is moved and allows more increased movement. Uh, some types of traction would be a pelvic sling, a pelvic belt, a cervical or skeletal, which a cervical skeletal, or also known as a halo brace, um, Buck's traction. So this prevents hip uh, flexion contracture, and Rush Russell's traction is a sling under the knee, and it helps to suspend the leg. Uh, it happens, or it's used in hip fracture or fracture of the distal end of the femur. 
the most common so is skin and skeletal traction so skin um it's a velcro boot and bucks traction uh, belt or halter it's usually around the leg and the purpose is to decrease painful muscle spasms uh, skeletal would be uh, screws are surgically inserted into the bone the longer traction time there's longer traction time and heavier weights which would be 15 to 30 pounds and it impairs mobility the pin care or pin site care is really important you need to clean the area and you need to uh, weigh the need to have this type of um, traction and you have to have an order for it to be removed. We also need to check the equipment regularly, which is like every 8 to 12 hours or probably Q-shift and replace weights if uh, there are weights and um, check severe pain because the weights might be too heavy. Drug therapy. So uh, there is opioid and non-opioid analgesics, patient-controlled analgesia, merperidine, which is Demerol. It should never be used because it has toxic metabolites that can cause seizures and other complications. So again, merperidine or Demerol should never be used. Okay, Oxycodone and oxycodone acetaminophen is also, that's one is known as Percocet. There's also hydrocodone with acetaminophen, which is Norco. NSAIDs, which are a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory inflammatory disease, something, NSAIDs, uh, they can reduce inflammation, but it does slow bone healing. Uh, PT may be needed. Constipation is a big concern with opioid therapy. You also need to check bowel movements. Physical therapy and pain control um, would be needed. And for edema, you would use uh, heat or ice. There's also dexamethasone iontophoresis. iontophoresis. Uh, it's a method for observing, absorbing dexamethasone and to decrease inflammation and edema. There's electrical stimulation that could be used. A patient may have complex regional pain syndrome, which usually results from fractures or musculoskeletal trauma. So how do we manage CRPS? And again, that's complex regional pain syndrome. The use of objects with different textures, like rough, smooth, to help with soft tissue healing. We manage pain, and it's very important. Uh, many types of drugs are used, like anti-epileptics, antidepressants, corticosteroids, and bisphosphonates. For PTOT, we maintain ROM, so that is range of motion. And skin, when patient has CPRS, CRPS, sorry, is uh, swollen, warm, red, clammy, and bluish. We do gentle skin care. Neurostimulation is used to block impulses in the spinal cord um, and, or, and nerve damage. Minimal invasive sympathectomy, sympathectomy is the cutting of the sympathetic nerve branches via endoscopy through a small axillary incision and that would be required. Uh, discharge home right away with a follow-up the next day. Psychotherapy might be needed too. So surgical management for fractures. So they may receive a nerve block to provide comfort. 
most common surgical procedure is an open reduction with internal fixation or an ORIF, O-R-I-F. External fixation with closed reduction uh, is used when also soft tissue injury. An open reduction allows surgery to directly view the fracture site. Internal fixation uses screws, rods, plates to immobilize the fracture. After surgery, a splint is used or a cast or whatever. It might be used to help stabilize or immobilize the area. Metal implants may remain in place and external fixation. So pins and wires are inserted through the skin and then connected to an external frame. Advantages of external fixation. So minimal blood loss, um, early ambulation and exercise of affected body part maintains alignment in closed fractures that will not maintain position in a cast and stabilizes comminuted, comminuted fractures that require bone grafting. A disadvantage of external fixation is pin site infection, increased risk of osteomyelitis. Post-op, we would use ketolorac, ketor, yeah, ketorolac. <laughs> okay or toradol. It's given for inflammation and pain. If given a nerve block, it may not have pain from 18 to 24 hours after having surgery. With external fixator, do not forget to check for signs of infection. Teach alterations in clothing. Patient may have body image issues. There is something called Elizarov technique. Yeah, Elizarov. I-L, no. Yeah, I-L-I-Z-A-R-O-V technique of circular external fixation. It's used to treat new fractures. It pulls the cortex of the bone to stimulate new growth. And it, we turn four-sided nuts four times a day. Okay, you should probably look that one up. Non-union, non-union. When bone doesn't grow correctly and then electrical bone stimulation might be used, a system will send electrical charges to bone to stimulate health uh, healing. It cannot be used if you have a pacemaker. Yeah. And bone grafting for the non-union may be used to replace diseased bone. And bone chips are taken from the iliac crest and are packed in a diseased bone to start unionizing allografts might be used. Yes. So... Bone chips are taken from the iliac crest and are packed in the diseased bone to start unionizing and allografts might be used. Okay, that makes sense. Also, there is bone banking. It's a thing. And people donate their femoral heads and bone cannot be donated without consent, of course. Um, Low-intensity pulsed ultrasound. It is used in slow healing fractures, used 20 minutes each day no contraindication, and no adverse side effects. What other stuff do we do? We need to promote mobility, PT and OT. There's mirror box therapy, which is uh, when you cover the affected, affected limb and you look and move the non-injured limb and there's a mirror and it's help, it helps for cognitive retraining. I think people who may have had amputations, they also uh, might do that box therapy, mirror box therapy. Rehab go 
goes better and more successfully when the patient has willingness and motivation. So if they're super negative Nancy over in the corner, it's not going to work as well. You have to have that strong, willing mindset to get through it. Okay, so crutches and walkers are used to promote mobility. They require coordination, balance, and upper arm strength for crutches, and they're not used correctly. If they're not used correctly, they can cause axillary nerve damage. So a lot of people don't seem to like crutches, at least from what I've seen. Walkers are used in older folks usually, and uh, it can be used for minimal assistance. Complications of mobility. So ACS, what was that again? Acute compartment syndrome. And we follow the six P's for this. So pain, pressure, paralysis, paresthesia, pallor, and pulselessness. And we notify the PCP and try to relieve the pressure. Do not elevate or ice the extremity in ACS. Fasciotomy might be done to relieve pressure. Pack dressings are used um, or a wound vac could be used. And I believe lastly, the last thing I'm going to go over is infection. So we're going to prevent infection. We can use broad spectrum antibiotics as long as they're ordered, which would be like cephalosporins, clindamycin. Clindamycin also goes by cleosin and gentamicin. We could also do wound irrigation, debridement, and report any per purulent damage. Wound vacs are good, they can help, and they help decrease the infection rate. So um, that was all my notes on um, fractures, musculoskeletal stuff. We went over physiology, in case you forgot. We went over some bone healing, complications of fractures, the types of fractures, um, and how to manage pain, as well as like acute compartment syndrome and uh, what like drugs to use and all that fun stuff. So I hope this was useful for you. I think I'm done with my notes for the day unless I figure out where my electrolyte ones for the kids are, but that might be kind of repetitive. Um, but anyways, I'm going to stop this episode and I again, I hope you enjoyed listening or you know, maybe not enjoyed, but I hope you learned something and um, I hope you have a wonderful day and again, thank you for listening.